Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, we are excited to be jumping into the 1960s as we explore the debut album by the band, Music from Big Pink. Of course, the album comes out in 1968, but was recorded in 1967 after the band had just finished 19 months doing a tour and recording with Bob Dylan as his backing band. Dylan's fingerprints are all over this record. And so in many ways, we're going to have a conversation about whether it's possible to separate music from Big Pink from the artist that influenced it and the artist that it would go on to influence. So, Micaiah, tell us a little bit about the band. Okay, well, the band are uh, Rick Danko, uh, Levon Helm, Garth Hudson, Richard Manuel, and Robbie Robertson. And uh, when they were originally signed to Columbia, they were signed on as The Crackers uh, before changing their name to The Band. And they got the name The Band uh, just from people always calling them The Band, as in they would go... Um, out around Woodstock, and people would say, oh, that's the band over there. And so that's, you know, it's, it's not a great story, but it's the truth. Um, before that, they were known as the Hawks uh, because they were the backing band for an early rock and roll guy, uh, an early rock and roll guy, Ronnie Hawkins. So they were Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. And he was kind of like a Eddie Cochran kind of rock and roll star. Uh, to an extent, not not quite the links of some of the the icons that we think of today, and yeah. So after doing the Hawks, uh, they split with Ronnie, and they, from what I could tell, brief uh, briefly formed as like Levon Helm or Levon and the Hawks, uh, doing rock and roll music, R and B music. Uh, most of the guys are Canadian, but Levon Helm is from Arkansas, and with that that combination of guys and, you know, places, uh, you get this group of people who are so into folk music, country western music, gospel music, R&B, folk, soul, and rock and roll, and combined pretty much made up the style of the band in a genre that we now call Americana. And this comes into full swing and during 67, the time you referenced when they're doing the basement tape recordings with Dylan, um, who beats them to the punch just a little bit with his album, John Wesley Harding, in 1967. And then they follow in 1968 with Music from Big Pink. And of course, Music from Big Pink uh, gets its title from the name of the house that was shared by Rick Danko and Richard Manuel and and Garth Hudson, and this was in uh, West Sagardy's New York. And essentially these three guys, three of the five band members, uh, were sharing a house together, and this is also where they were setting up and recording. And one of the things that you hear on music from Big Pink, even as they moved into studios in New York and L.A., is they kept the, the, the feel of the music that they were writing and recording in this this big ugly pink house in New York, 
is that they were recording all together, that everyone played all together. Essentially, every song you hear on the album is a live song. Uh, they're 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 recording all at once. There's no overdubbing. They're not going back later and doing vocals or guitar parts. Everything is recorded all together. And there is the feel in this album of a band that just plays together. In many ways, they have the feel in this album of the greatest bar band of all time that can play every possible style of music. They can play it well. They're gifted in and this incredible band is is working together in this home that three of the guys are living in. And here they are writing this music and writing this some of the music with Bob Dylan, who they've been with, and writing some of the music just together as a band. And then, of course, there's even a cover or two on this album. So they're writing this music, kind of very distinctive sound during 1967. And, and here they are recording in this in this house and ultimately they are able to sell this music finally i'm, I'm sure with the help and influence of dylan they finally yeah, they get actually had they had the same manager as mm-hmm. dylan albert grossman uh so that is really kind of what expedited the process of them like getting a deal um mm-hmm. was through that connection albert grossman was the other person who had them uh move I think he was the the one who got them to move up to New York as well. Yeah. He's well, kind of the then, mastermind. Um, I think we, I think I may have skipped right over. We may have skipped right over, but uh, the band when they were still the Hawks toured with Dylan when he went electric. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he when Dylan did his world tour, uh, mostly through Europe in 1966, around the time Blonde on Blonde was coming out. The band are the band that's getting booed with Dylan for playing rock music instead of folk music. While on tour, Levon Helm decided that he didn't like the music they were playing, and he didn't like the reception from the crowd, and that's when he split. So he's not even on the infamous Royal, mm-hmm. you know, so you know, alleged Royal Albert Hall concert which we know wasn't actually at the uh, the royal albert hall so he isn't even on that recording because he had split pretty early so here he is he's taken off and he's and he's working on oil rigs and once it, it correct me if i'm wrong here once they sign the record deal he comes he comes back once they are signed on yeah they, they now that they have signed on to be their own band that's when he's back in because mm-hmm. he was kind of um, no, not really wanting to just be someone's, you know, backing band. He wanted to have his band, you know, kind of something to take ownership over. So that's when he, you know, came back. And the the recording of the album essentially is split between two studios or, or two locations. Um, they record on A uh, and R Studios, which is on Fifty Second Street and Seventh Avenue in New York. And they record Tears of Rage, Chest Fever, We Can Talk, This Wheel's on Fire, and the the lone charted single of the album, The Wait, the most famous song by the band, they record in the New York sessions. And then later on, Capitol Records brings them out to L.A. to record at Capitol Studios, and some of the work is in Gold Star and, and as well. And they record... 
in a station to kingdom come lonesome Susie long black veil and I shall be released in the LA sessions of, of the recording of the album. And, and so we, we see this uh, in, in many ways, here's his band. Here's what they're known for. They don't even record the album in the same place recording in two different places. And yet despite recording on opposite sides of the country, they record this album very, very quickly. And of course, the the lack of overdubbing, doing everything as live takes, um, they're not going in and uh, doing what artists can sometimes do, which is you spend weeks of time trying to get a particular sound down. They had been road tested. They knew their sound. They knew what they wanted to sound like. And they were able to come in and get this album on tape essentially in two weeks of, of recording session between New York in Los Angeles. And it's one of the things that at the time when the album came out, Rolling Stone writer Al Cooper wrote an incredible review of Big Pink. And this is what he said. The album was recorded in approximately two weeks. There are people who will work the rest of their lives in vain and not touch it. And so this beautiful picture of just going, hey, here's what they've done in two weeks. Here's what they've accomplished. I really, really admire this album. I deeply love this album. But there is something that I think that is at play here that can lead us to maybe devalue the album to a certain extent. Of course, The Weight was the lone single off the album. It peaked at number 63 on Billboard's chart. It, it peaked higher in Canada, where it topped at number 35, and in the United Kingdom, it topped at 21. Um, the album went as high as number 30 on the Billboard album charts in 1968. Uh, but what's interesting enough is it it peaked at number 30 on Billboard in 1968, and then it went as high as number eight when the album was re-released in 2000. And, oh, wow. And, and, and part of that is, of course, because um, after the album comes out, that single, The Weight, becomes... A, a, an important album. It's one of the the songs that is that is on the famous Woodstock recording. Uh, the band played that song, and it was recorded for the Woodstock. Uh, I think that's a four LP uh, set that came out in 1970. Um, and so it's it's on that. It's also plays a major role in the movie Easy Rider, and then yeah. of course the soundtrack there for Easy Easy Rider. And then it has been rated uh, in a number of lists. Um, it was uh, rated number 452 in Colin Larkin's all-time top 1,000 albums, which came out in 2000. Uh, in the very first Rolling Stone 500 list that came out in 2003, it was ranked number 34. When they revised the list in 2012, it stayed there at number 34. But when they redid the list last year, it fell to 100. And so they've got it listed as the 100th greatest album of all time. Real quick, do you know what 99 is? I do not. Red by Taylor Swift. <laughs> so it is just behind. It just got beat out by Red by Taylor Swift. Interesting. It is strange to me that in the 2012 revision, it stayed at 34, and then it dropped... 66 places between the 2012 and two in 2020 list. 
Yeah, well, the 2003-2012 list wasn't like a complete redoing. Mm-hmm. It's that, that's why the, the 2020 list is so drastically different. Uh, because they, they started like, they started fresh. And um, they just got a lot more different voices mm-hmm. and contributors. Um, so, for you know, you, when you would see in the 2012 list a bunch of hip-hop albums well past the top 100, a lot of them now are in the top 100. Um, so it pushed out some of these kind of gatekeeper kind of albums, I guess, as, as some people say. And also, I mean, 100... 100 is still the top 100. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that, I mean, obviously, since it was on my nomination for 50, I I, I can agree with this. And, then you know, the, the way that I put my 50 together, I cannot be offended by this. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, it's still the top 100. And also, um, in 2020, Paste uh, made a list of the 60 albums of the 1960s, and they had it at number 12. Mm-hmm. And I think they had the self-titled album at 14. Uh, they had it like pretty close. They're about neck and neck. I think the difference is not where you where it gets rated in other lists, but some of the things that we see. And this is where we get into the influence of music from Big Pink. So Eric Clapton yeah. famously said that this album and getting to know the band is ultimately what convinced him to quit Cream and pursue um, other styles of music and ultimately ultimately start off on a solo career. So in many ways, the band is, is responsible for Eric Clapton launching a solo career. George Harrison essentially says the same thing, that, that he sees in the band a different style of music than what the Beatles were doing at the time, and it really allows him to move in a new direction in after the Beatles are done uh, officially in April of 1970, when the Beatles officially call it quits, George Harrison is ready to go in many ways because of the influence of this album. You know, uh, in, from 65 to 67 for Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper, he has a song of his own on those records, like with a sitar. Mm-hmm. 1968, Big Pink comes out. And his contributions to the White Album, which is kind of the most out there Beatles album, he doesn't pick up the sitar again. It, it is more rock and roll, roots rock kind of style from there. And then by the time he gets to do All Things Must Pass in 1970, just a couple years later, I mean, it, it is so heavily influenced by that kind mm-hmm. of what we now call Americana yeah. sound. Yeah. And so then Roger Waters, of course, uh, this is in the UK and the other side of other side of the pond. He's calling this music from Big Pink. He says it is the second most influential record in the history of rock and roll after the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. And and ultimately goes on to say that that it affects Pink Floyd deeply in the way that they wrote. I mean, they're for for a album that did not chart in the top 20 in the year that it came out in it, it has an influence that really begins to establish what the next 10 years of, of popular music are going to sound like. And uh, Terry Burroughs, um, famous, famous uh, music historian, Terry Burroughs and music academian, Chris Smith, 
this is what they've said about it. They said that it was kind of defining of the Americana genre. And Chris Smith said that it laid the groundwork for roots rock music, that essentially root rock music would not exist without music from big pink. You know, I, I feel kind of weird about that quote, but I also not, not as much as I do the Roger Waters one. I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier before we uh, started recording, but I, the 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 idea that Sgt. Pepper and this band are the two most influential of all time might be true only for one genre and one decade. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think there's like a couple asterisks uh, following that quote. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if, you know, most influential for 1967, 1968, up to like 1976, 78. Potentially true. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, for rock music in particular, potentially true. Otherwise, by the time punk rock comes, uh, no chance. And even also punk rock uh, disco, which is bringing in hip hop. I mean, it, it it is not a relevant album in the 80s, uh, I, I don't think. Until maybe the late, very late 80s when the alt-country movement comes into fruition we also think of for those of us who were exposed to the band after 1978 we think of the band also in the context of the great concert documentary the last waltz and you and i were having this conversation because both of us in preparation for recording today have have Mm -hmm. have listened to music from Big Pink multiple times. And we've both watched Mm -hmm. The Last Waltz today. Which is available on Hulu, potentially still now, when we put this out. Yeah. So if anyone has not seen The Last Waltz, could not recommend it uh, more. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and, And here's what I'll say about The Last Waltz. I listened to music from Big Pink three times today. Now, music from Big Pink is obviously in my list. It's in my top 50. It's in Makai's list. It's in his top 50. That's why we're talking about it. And yet, after three times listening to the album today, I found myself second-guessing my inclusion of this album in my top 50. I was I was very prepared to come into the recording today and say, you know what? I was wrong. This is not, this is not a top 50 record for me. I don't think this is worthy of being included in, in our, in our list that we're talking about. And then I watched the last waltz and the last waltz gives you an appreciation, a recognition of the importance of this band of the band the importance of this album uh, and the quality of these songs that they really do. I mean, it's, it's, it is a, in many ways, genre spanning album covers everything that is popular in the sixties and seventies. They, they, we were making the joke earlier before we started recording that, this really does feel like uh, the the best possible backing band 
for a night of karaoke because it doesn't matter the genre. It doesn't matter the style. They can do it and they can do it well. And that is on full display in the last waltz as you see these guys support Dr. John, uh, Eric Clapton, Muddy Waters, the Staple Singers, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, right. Neil Young. I, it, it doesn't matter what the artist is. doesn't matter the genre of music. And also, it sounds great. Also, um, also Ronnie Hawkins, mm-hmm. uh, Lou Harris. And for people who don't know the names are dropping, what we're basically saying is in this two-hour-long you know, concert movie, uh, they have Van Morrison, mm-hmm. Ringo Starr in, in it. They're, yep. Uh, so in this thing, they're doing country music, gospel music, R and B, blues, uh, rock and roll. You know, early rock and roll, uh, folk music. I mean, the the amount of things that they cover in that amount of time, and still are just the band. Uh, even uh, with Doctor John, like that very specific New Orleans mm-hmm. bass. Uh, music that he does. This it's not quite Zydeco or anything, but but so central to to New Orleans. I mean, they they really can do it all. Even when they're playing Coyote with Joni Mitchell, which is way more on the experimental end of folk music. I mean, she is really journeying out at that point. Uh, I mean, they're they're really doing something special, and a lot of them are changing instruments too, mm-hmm. which is really great. I mean, Levon Helm is a great drummer, but he's also playing mandolin mm-hmm. at some point. And, I mean, kind of the unsung hero, uh, because he's the only guy in the band who doesn't sing and doesn't, I don't think, has a songwriting credit. But Garth Hudson is playing the organ, the piano, the sax. Plays the I drums mean, this, on I one mean, song? He's, yeah, I mean, this this man is just, they're like kind of the key to their success. And well, actually, you know, that's the thing about the band is you take away one of them and it it really slowly starts to fall Mm -hmm. apart. I mean, there is something about this group of guys um, that is just something, uh, something so mythological and iconic and fantastic about what happens when they come together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that that being said, uh, I just finished, I mean... 30 minutes ago, 40 minutes ago, just finished watching The Last Waltz and came into this this recording no longer second-guessing, no longer full of doubt. Hey, did I get this wrong? After watching The Last Waltz, I'm, I'm back on the side of, yes, this is a top 50 album. This is a top 50 album for me. Is it fair to judge an album in light of a another a, another piece of art that the group is involved in because it, i'm i'm telling you now uh, what i've just confessed is after spending the day with just the album i was questioning i was full of doubt then i saw the concert film and that reaffirmed my belief in the album so so is there a way to view this album or to think of this album as wholly separate from the rest of their catalog, the rest in, in this concert film, this famous concert film directed by Martin Scorsese, the last waltz. I mean, this it's, it's very difficult to separate 
this album from a key player, the guy who pretty much concludes the the concert film, mm-hmm. Dylan. I mean, you can't when you when you first go to pick up this record, the cover of it is a painting by mm-hmm. Bob Dylan. And there aren't any track lists on the back of it. On the back of it, it just says a big bold letters, music from Big Pink with a small picture of the house. Right. And if you are a music obsessive in 1968, you would know that Dylan had spent time in that house and that they were recording. And then a year later, the famous bootlegs would start coming out, even though the Basement Tapes album, the double LP, didn't come out to 1975. Right. It was something that was so heavily bootlegged and known among these kind of music obsessives that you would know these things. And you would know, even though there's no track list, that the album includes songs from those sessions, um, starting with Tears of Rage and ending with I Shall Be Released, um, which, and, and this is the thing for me. These are two songs that are co-written by Dylan and uh, Richard Manuel from the band. And I think, even though there are multiple versions of, the, of these songs, the two that exist on the album are the best version, best versions of those mm-hmm. songs. So, I mean, better than the ones that we have of Dylan, you know, on, on some of his compilations or live albums, and not, not excluding the, the basement tapes themselves. So for me, the uh, music from Big Pink really does stand alone in that the guy who defined the 1960s, they're topping. Mm. They're, writing with, they're writing with him and they're out singing him. And together they can certainly outplay him. Yeah. And they they can write with him. Mm-hmm. And and they and they have other songs. Uh I mean this album sits in between John Wesley Harding by Dylan and Nashville Skyline, his two country albums or American albums. And this one tops them Agreed. both. So yeah, that that that's kind of my take on how do you separate it from Dylan, even though he he is kind of all over the record and part of the mythology and even the cover of the record. But when you open up the album, it it separates from him even further. Cause when you open up the gatefold case or gatefold cover rather, and you see on the right, just a picture of the band in their family. And it says next of kin next to it. So not only do we have the start of Americana, we certainly have now the beginning of dad rock. (laughs) There are children everywhere patriarchs and matriarchs of all generations right and then on the left you have a picture of the house and it you know a little inscription that says that big pink the house is the first witness to these songs these songs this album this lp this artifact belongs to that place and cannot exist without that space and there's something and and it comes through in the recording it's never mentioned by name in any of the songs. It's the, the the name of the album is not on the front of the cover either, but that place is all over this record, and it's something that's so evocative and so powerful that I think that's the impressionistic. I think is probably the right word for it. That's something that only other great artists can do outside of music. Um, yeah, so the, 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 I think that gives it the, the kind of lasting power. Hmm. 
There is something to that. And I love how you said it, that there's something about an album that, that has a place And and it's weird to say that because it does this, because the songwriting all takes place in, in essentially this house where three of the guys are living, where all of the band is there, where Dylan is there. Um, so even if not everyone's living there together, if even if it's only three guys living there together, this is a home. This is this is a home in a way yeah. that because of how quickly they recorded the studio versions of these songs, it was a home for this music in a way that the studio in New York and the studio in L.A. never were. So there there is a beautiful mm-hmm. thing about about this in in even. Even the track order, thinking of how you start with Tears of Rage, you end with I Shall Be Released, you end, you begin and end with these Dylan Manuel co-written songs. Uh-huh. I, I think there's something about this period of time, this place, the relationship with Dylan. And again, I'm, I'm with you. I think that this, it's impossible to separate Dylan from, from this album. And yet it is not Dylan overshadowing this album. It is, it is the band standing on their own with, with a, with a friendship, with a collaborator, but I'm with you at this point between Blonde on Blonde and the early 70s, I don't know that Dylan does an album as good as music from Big Pink. And and so I think there's something yeah. to be said for it is this is not Mm-mm. Bob Dylan's backup band doing an album. This is these five artists who they come together and become more together than the sum of their parts. And and there is something mm-hmm. that is that is beautiful about that the the nature of of how the music sounds and again I think there's something incredible about the fact that they weren't they weren't doing what was common at the time so while they're recording this album the period of time they're recording this album is the same period of time the Beatles are recording Magical Mystery Tour and they are recording the tracks that will become the White Album. And you think about mm-hmm. what we have today because of the Beatles anthologies. We have, I mean, just takes upon takes upon takes upon takes of all of the stuff that went into the White Album. All these different versions of of these songs. We have, you know, the overdubs upon overdubs upon overdubs that, that went in. And the band doesn't do any of that. The band is, is five guys they're playing, they know what to play, they know how to play, they're playing, they're singing, all of its live takes. And it feels like that. It feels, it, it has the vibrancy of a live band playing. Instead of, instead of a band that you're hearing their best studio work, this album feels like a live album in so many ways. And yeah, no, it's, it's, it's enormous. It's so funny because some of the, the critiques from the time were talking about like, oh, it's kind of a quiet album. It doesn't have a lot of energy to it, but I mean, I think, I mean, I, I mean, I was just, I, I was uh, spinning on the turntable recently. I had to, you know, fairly loud. And I mean, I think it, 
I mean, I think it's an enormous album. The sound is so huge, like with that organ and Levon Helm on the drums, and their voices are so enormous, the three of them. I, I, I don't see it as mm-hmm. a very quiet album at all. I, mean, I think it's quite yes. thunderous. We are thrilled today to be joined by Amen O'Connor, who is the co-editor of the documentary film, Once We're Brothers. Uh, so I'm Eamon O'Connor. Uh, I'm a documentary film editor and, I guess, a feature film editor based in Toronto, in Canada. And I got into filmmaking because I have an uncle who's a Hollywood filmmaker, uh, director, Pat O'Connor. And over the years, you know, my, my uncle also had films at TIFF and would come to town and the whole family would kind of go to the screenings. And I come from a family of artists and, you know, my, my parents are painters and my sister's a painter and I love painting, but filmmaking, I was just drawn to. So, uh, I actually have, I went to university and I was sort of toying with the idea, you know, like, how do I, I have a history degree, actually. I did some film in university and then after I was looking at a way to get into it, traveled for a couple of years and then eventually went to film school and, uh, out of film school, I ended up working for a filmmaker named Mark Akbar on a film called The Corporation, which was at the time was a huge smash hit. Um, and that really launched my career, um, working on that film. And I was really focused on documentaries early on. And, um, and it just kind of snowballed from there. I ended up cutting a series for a couple of years in Vancouver, moved back to Toronto, and then, um, you know, got a couple opportunities to cut some films and it just snowballed one after the other, which is, I think, a very common story with uh, people, filmmakers who've been through the film school. With someone who comes from a family of painters, how did you land on editing versus something like cinematography or set design or directing? This is a really good thing. When you go to film school, you can try it all. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I used to do a lot more photography than I do now. Um, I think part of that is just, uh, life and kids and all kinds of things. But, um, yeah, I was just really drawn to editing. I, I, well, actually in film school, I was directing and, um, really documentaries are made in the edit. And so, uh, the film two, three of the, I mean, three films in film school that I directed, but I worked quite closely with the editors and, um, I just saw that what they were doing in their process. And I was like, Oh, I, I know that I could do this. And they're like, you know, there's so many directors who are editors and editors who become directors. It just seemed like a really good step. Um, I was also a very practical person, which is that I, I knew a lot of um, divorced and uh, unhappy <laughs> directors. <laughs> and uh, I, I really want to have sort of a steady career. I knew that I wanted a family and uh, I thought, you know, naively, I hadn't a clue because um, I know a lot of very happily married directors and very happy people uh, now, you know, that I'm in, well into my, uh, you know, I think 16 or 17 years into my career. But at the time I was like, oh, I need stability. Um, I was sort of, I guess, in some ways hedging my bets. And I think for a couple of years, I told people that I was an editor director. And then after about three or four years uh, and, you know, some, some big successes, I was like, mm, okay, no, I'm actually an editor. And so I dropped that from my business card and stopped telling people that I was a director anymore. But the reality is when, I, when you're editing a film, you're, you, you are actually, um, 
directing it and writing it um, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very funny thing. And in, and in, um, you know, in the world of editing and direct and editing documentaries, uh, it's a funny thing, um, credit and how that works uh, because the directors generally tend to get all the credit. Um, but people who, who make documentaries, who know the process, who understand it, know that uh, editors are like, it's like this. You know, it's a symbiotic relationship and it's, um, it's, it's totally tied to the process. So, um, yeah, so it was a really great way uh, early on for me to get work and then it kind of snowballed and I, I have an aptitude for it and it, it just kind of kept going. And I love your approach that you're taking as a, as a documentary editor. Does that, is that different when you're talking about music or when you're talking about um, you know, what we would think of as kind of a classic rock documentary is do you approach it differently when there's a music or a musical artist, or is it essentially just you're approaching it all the same? The story is hidden in that footage and, and you want to get to the core of that story. So music, music documentaries have a built in structure. There's generally a chronology to an artist's work. Um, and so, and in Robbie, in Once Her Brother's case, you know, I, I was familiar with his early music in Toronto in the 1950s. And then through the transformation with, uh, you know, first with Ronnie Hawkins, then with Bob Dylan, and then ultimately on their own. And that coincided with geographical changes and, and also um, emotional changes and changes relationship-wise with their, their group of uh, bandmates. So what was great is that for each era, um, we were able to then use the music as a structure for each kind of scene. And we toyed around with different songs, songs that really we, we thought encapsulated, um, you know, the, mo- the moment when certain things happened. Um, but, you know, if you a careful reading of the music, and there probably, there's probably some serious fans out there who might take issue with, the certain chronology or versions of the songs and these kinds of things. But generally from our perspective, Daniel's in mind, we just tried to find songs that really fit um, the era that we were working in. Um, and I remember one specifically, uh, and, and, you know, we, we, we used Robbie's book as a guide, but he talks about going down to um, Arkansas and learning how to play guitar. Um, this is, you know, he would have been about 15 years of age. Um, this is really before he was a member of the Hawks, but he was kind of being tested out um, by Ronnie Hawkins. And it's interesting. I wonder, oh God, anyway, it'll come back to me. But so, so for music docs, there's this built-in element, which is you can cut to the music. And, and this is actually a big problem for a lot of documentary filmmakers is that they fall in love with music. And because budgets in, our, in, uh, in feature docs are relatively small, you end up having to cut songs out. And if you're too reliant on the music, um, you can, it can totally ruin, you know, and you have to go back in and completely, sometimes completely reconceptualize what the scene is. Mm. But we knew, and we had, and that was part of the agreement early on, we knew we, we pretty much had carte blanche. So, and that's the trick of the film and the trick of the editing. And, you know, we've gotten a lot of, um, you know, um, positive feedback about the editing in the film. Um, but this one, you know, is a special film because the music, especially growing up as a Canadian, 
is so iconic. Um, you know, I think all Canadian kids grow up listening to it. There's a very funny thing about the band's music, which is um, unlike the Beatles, and everybody listens to the Beatles, and you know that they're from the UK, and everybody listens to the Rolling Stones and Keith and Mick uh, talk, and they're like, oh, yeah, those guys are from the UK. You know, and everybody listens to the Beach Boys, and you hear those guys talking like they're American. For Canadians, and this is, you know, the, the weekend actually just played um, the Super Bowl on the weekend uh, on Sunday. And, you know, if you're not Canadian, you don't know that the weekend is from Toronto. You know, he's from Scarborough. And if you're, or Drake, or the band. And, you know, the, the guys were living in Woodstock. And so, and we have this thing in Canada called uh, Canadian content, content CanCon. So the radio stations have to play a certain percentage of music. But it wasn't necessarily easily identifiable as Canadian. And so my introduction to the band, which probably segues into another part of this interview, but <laughs> is that we all just grew up listening to it. And it's a very similar story for Daniel. I remember him telling me he was on a canoe trip with his dad. And I was first introduced to the band at, um, at summer camp. And my counselor got up uh, with an acoustic guitar. And you have to, there's a place in Ontario called Georgian Bay. And it is one of the most spectacular places. I mean, I've lived all over the world. I've been traveled all over. And Georgian Bay is by far one of the most magical places on earth. And I was sitting there watching the sunset and, my, and a huge bonfire and my, and my counselor's playing the weight on guitar. And it wasn't until years later that I was in a, a record shop and I was, I was a teenager and they were playing the music, you know, quite craftily as they do. And then you go up and you say, who is this? And they were like, it's the band. And I bought the album and that's how I got introduced to it. And it was amazing to hear that Daniel um, had a similar experience. So we, we've done, interestingly enough, we've done a few episodes where this has become an issue. So we are both from Florida. We are from the American South. Yeah. And one of the things that, I mean, I guess is kind of just typical for us as Americans, whether it's privilege or whatever it is, there, there is just a, this assumption that our view or perspective on the world is everyone's perspective on the world that, <laughs> that, that we have the kind of def, you know definitive perspective of the world and then we kind of have this expectation everyone sees the world this way yeah and so it's kind of looking at some of these albums and in, in, in listening whether it's what we hear in the documentary um, and even one of the things I love in the documentary is how you reference uh, Robbie's relationship to the indigenous people community that he grew up in and around yeah. And even thinking about the very different ways in which Canadians em embrace and recognize Indigenous peoples in Canada in a way that we still struggle with in the United States. And so wondering how much of whether it's Robbie's music or his background, or whether it's the entirety of the band, what is it as a Canadian you understand and get instinctively about this music that we just don't, we don't see it because it's not part of our experience. What I came to realize in Big Pink, and, and another way I came into appreciating the music, so I'd, I'd listened to it as a kid, and then it was when I watched um, The Last Waltz. Mm -hmm. And even still, when you watch The Last Waltz, you know, there's a Canadian flag in it, and Robbie references, and the guys reference, you know, and Ronnie Hawkins is in it, and they reference kind of that history. 
it's really in the background. You have to really dig for it to understand that they're Canadian and that, and that you know, that's their story. The amazing thing that I came to understand, um, for a lot of people, they think that this band magically appeared in Woodstock and under the tutelage of Bob Dylan came up with Big Pink, music from Big Pink. And really what I came to understand with working on this project, and I did another film in our three-part series in Toronto years ago with a, with a famous Canadian filmmaker named Bruce McDonald, and it was called Young Street Rock and Roll Stories. And, it, and you know, the, the filmmakers, well, Bruce and a good friend of mine, Jan Haust, uh, was, the, was, fe- was featured in the film. He's the executive producer and one of the writers. Is that really music from Big Pink was the end of this long musical um, progression that started in Toronto in 19, I think, uh, 59. Mm-hmm. And, and then sort of the end result was B- Big Pink. It wasn't that that was the beginning of something. Mm-hmm. That was really the culmination of something. And that's maybe something that's I think we tried to put into um, the film. Uh, and that's and that it sort of explains why I think for Robbie, when you know when things did go sideways and you know for the guys in the band, you know there there have been years, years of of history and you know I mean these guys were making music as young teenagers, mm-hmm. and uh, so that was I don't know again if I answered your question, but that that to me was like a really interesting the whole way I came to understand that these guys were Canadian and realizing this, this, this album that I had been influenced by was really the exclamation point on a story that starts in Toronto years earlier, but that had really, and you know, even in, in Canada, I, I don't even think it's that well known, you know? Well, That's I think there's such a good point to that. And, and one of the things you do such a great job at in the documentary Again, an American who tends to think of the band because because music from Big Pink is their debut album. Yeah, it's you know a band that's been recording together and playing together for eleven years. At that point, we, yeah, that's their debut album. Yeah, um, but it's so interesting in in the documentary in 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 Robbie illustrates this so clearly in his book. But that season in Woodstock, coming off of this tour with Dylan, um, you know, the, the beginning of this relationship with the record label, yes, they, they produced this really great album, but it coincides with, you know, the, the beginning of Robbie's marriage and kids mm-hmm. are suddenly, I mean, there is such a transition into a, a more mature, more settled adulthood for Robbie. Yeah, it isn't there for the rest of the band, yeah. and so if if you take it as if you view it as Americans tend to as as music from Big Pink is the start of the career for the band, yeah, then you see a band that is destined to break apart from the beginning because the one who really becomes their dominant songwriter is is headed in in, in just in terms of life stage, he's headed in such a different direction. Yeah. than the rest of the guys are from the beginning. Yeah. But if you understand that in the context that you're talking about, that, hey, this is a group that's, that they're from Toronto. These guys have been playing together. They've been the backing band for Ronnie Hawkins. And all. Mm-hmm. The, if you understand the history of that, then what becomes essentially the downfall of the band 
makes way more sense yeah. in that in that context. And you did yeah. such a remarkable job in the documentary painting that clear picture for us and in a way that for both of us has us even listening to the album differently. Yeah. Um, and that and that was that was an epiphany for me too, and I think for Daniel. And um, you know, Robbie said something interesting, and I don't know if this is actually in the film, but he just said, you know, and when you think about it, um, these guys. Robbie started playing in Ronnie Hawkins' band when he was fifteen, and the thing, like, I don't know what happened. I mean, everyone has their theories about what happened with with uh, with Robbie and Levon, and we touch on it in the film. That's Robbie's perspective, and that's actually something like one of the biggest criticisms of our film. Our take on it is that it's blatant, you know, just uh, pushing Robbie's agenda, um, which is, you know, that I, I, I can understand that. I, I mean, I don't have it. Oh, yeah, it's just over there. I have This Wheels on Fire just in my bookshelf, just right there. And I, a, an amazing book, if you haven't read it. It's just, it's a, it's a fantastic take. It's Levon's take on it. Yeah. Um, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And the thing about it is, and what I, what I, now, I'm a father of two young kids, and I'm in my 40s. And one of the things that happens when you get to my age is you start losing friends. And it's like an incredible, incredibly painful thing that can happen. And the reality is, is I have two little kids, you know, COVID aside, and I just can't see everybody that I, that I love and that I want to see. And thankfully, many people I get to sort of touch base with. Um, but, you know, the idea that I would be friends with, uh, or I don't think I have, I have maybe have one friend from, you know, when I was 15. And maybe that's a a comment uh, who I am as a, as a person, but you know, many of my friends I met sort of at later stages in life, you know, after university. And that was like a really relatable thing. I was like, yeah, you know, I don't think I'm friends. I'm not friends with the, the, the crew of guys that I hung out with in, in, in you know, my well, first and second year of high school. I'm friendly with some of them, but I'm not, you know, tight. And I think that's that when I understood that, that really gave me like a real insight and a real understanding as well as something that like, it's a painful experience. And I think it's a painful experience for Robbie. Uh, you know, I, I, I've spent some time at Garth uh, during the film. He's very gracious and, and, you know, let me actually stay at his house in uh, Woodstock. And, you know, I don't even go there with Garth. It's, it's old news. Um, you know, they have a lot of love and affection, those two, Robbie and Garth. Um, you know, so one of the, another criticism of the film is that we, we focus too much on their relationship. Um, you know, it, for Daniel, that, that was the story for Daniel. And I think Robbie, you know, you know it, it was just, he had some things that he needed to get out. So, uh, Speaking of kind of uh, creating the story, you know, when you're making the documentary that, you know, the story is crafted in the editing room. Uh, and you're just looking at hours and hours of footage of Robbie talking. Is, is there ever a conflict between the stories that Robbie was telling or the story Robbie was telling and the movie that you were trying to make? Do those ever come in conflict with each other or was it kind of easy to, to just kind of say, okay, well, Robbie kind of has his own idea of how this story plays out, so we'll just craft it around that? Or was it ever in conflict with the, the movie that, what the movie wanted to be? I don't think so. I mean, we didn't, unfortunately, you know, uh, Levon is not alive, but we talked to people in his circle who are in the film, um, including Amy Helm. And Amy Helm just said the best, which is like, she's like, I don't know. I wasn't there. You know, you can talk to these folks, but 
I don't really have anything to say about it because I don't, I don't know. I was, I was a baby. Um, in good documentaries, there should be uh, conflict and you shouldn't be beholden to your subject. Um, and I don't think that was the case in this film. Um, but some of the people who I think may be the only people who could have contradicted Robbie, unfortunately, are dead. Um, you know, first and foremost. But, you know, and I think even people like Rick and Richard, I think, would have um, lended uh, an interesting perspective. And we did, you know, one of the criticisms I've read about it, too, is that we didn't uh, talk. Garth wasn't in the film. Uh, we interviewed Garth and, um, you know, it was it was a decision, actually, that I wasn't really involved in, ultimately not to put him in. Um, but, you know, Garth, Garth isn't really one to sort of get into the nitty gritty details of, uh, Robbie and, and Levon's relationship. So he, you know, he likes to talk about the music and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and the, and that's his thing. And, And he's a special person. And, and we were lucky. I mean, we had Dominic, Dominique who had a front row seat and we had a couple other people, um, you know, who could just really, um, uh, Bill Scheel and John, John Scheel and, uh, you know, some, some people who were there and, and, and we just let those guys really tell their, their version of the story. And I don't think we, we didn't have to kind of construct anything. That was a very natural, um, we thought grouping or chorus of voices that, that told a remarkably consistent story. So our podcast is largely about not only loving music, but making lists, right? What's your top five? Yeah. I'm from the sixties, top five of all time, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so now we're having a fun crossover because we also love movies. Yeah. Um, where we get to talk about, you know, rock docs as they're called or yeah. concert films. So as someone who edits them, um, what would you say are maybe your top five, top three, if you want, um, either music documentaries or concert films? Yeah. Um, you know, I went and looked at, uh, when I, you know, before, before this, I went and looked at a whole bunch. And um, I, I'd say, you know, so I, I watched all kinds of documentaries, but Rock Docs, um, I'd say Woodstock is a really good one. Mm, yeah. Um, just because... You know, I, I was born in the 70s. I wasn't at Woodstock. And just to see it. And there's so much interesting outtakey stuff there that really gives you a sort of a lay of the land. Um, sadly, the band is not in the film, um, which they headlined and, and closed out the, the festival. So that's too bad. And that really comes down to their manager. Uh, what else did I write down? Um, you know, a, a recent one that I saw that I, that I really liked, and I liked it from an editing kind of animation point, uh, was a Montage of Heck, uh, the Kurt Cobain. Uh, oh, uh, wow. Which yeah. was that TIFF. Uh, and it's just beautifully put together using old notebooks, um, animations of him writing, and photos. Um, it's just, it's, it's really beautifully done. I mean, it's a sad story. Kurt Cobain was, you know, a tormented guy, but... Uh, you know, I grew up listening to his music and that was a really, that was a really great one to watch. I liked, uh, there's a great one, a great Canadian film called Anvil about this. Yeah. Have yeah. you seen Anvil? So, I haven't seen it. Is, th- is that the, the metal band? Or? Yeah. Yeah. They're like, 
it's uh, it reminds me i mean these two films should be watched together but it was the Amer- american movie and mm-hmm. anvil should be watched together uh they're like compatriot films uh anvil's the story of like yeah two kind of aging middle-aged guys who had kind of come close to stardom um, as a metal band here in Ontario and Canada and just never really managed to get it together. And, uh, you know, one of them's working as a, as a food delivery guy and I'm not sure what the other guy did. Anyway, they kind of, it's like the last hurrah and they decide to go on a tour and they, they, they video, they film the whole thing and it's like the backstory. So that's a really good one. Um, and it's, I, I, I love these films because they're really, and I guess there's a bit of a theme here, but except for maybe Woodstock, which is these are stories about very complicated human beings. And so really, I think that's the trick. And the films that I love are ones that have interesting human stories. Hmm. Um, so let me ask kind of our, 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 our final question. And, yeah. and, and we just, I, I can't thank you enough for the hour you've given us. It's so gracious and we, we, we definitely appreciate it. You spent 10 months looking at footage. You spent mm-hmm. 10 months learning about, and again, you saw interviews and kind of like you're saying, whether it's, whether it's just wholly inappropriate interviews or just things that kind of weren't in line of the story that you're telling. But if you take the, the total hours of content mm-hmm. about this specific group of guys, Mm-hmm. this band yeah. the band you you probably have more in your head now than than most people will ever have in terms of information about this group and mm-hmm. so I, I wonder if you know that they're old the old saying familiarity breeds contempt after after learning as much after seeing so far behind the curtain yeah robbie robertson and the band yeah in the aftermath of all of that, yeah. how do you then appraise or value music from Big Pink or their self-titled album or just kind of their catalog as a, as a, as a group in general? Has it yeah. changed the way you see them or yeah. has it just that complexity has added richness for you? Yeah, so I don't listen to the big albums anymore. Um, and I, you know, I have... I listen, you know, I have a streaming service up here that, and I kind of, yeah, I had to take a break. And what I, what I actually have really enjoyed listening to is really obscure recordings. Um, and, you know, and I've, I've been, I found a whole bunch of really cool stuff, you know, and, 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 and researching and there, and there's some box sets that are out there. If you're a fan, um, some early recordings when, uh, it was Levon and the Hawks. I actually, I, so when I was working on the film, I created a whole playlist of like, uh, of influences of Robbie's. And, um, that was a lot of fun to play at a part. I was up at a party, you know, before COVID and I was kind of, I did kind of a musical history. And so that's been really fun. It's like, oh yeah, all the influences, all the bands, all the contemporaries, all the like obscure, you know, people who never quite made it the Bengal balls, you know, who also have an album at big, big pink. Uh, uh, and, you know, Levon and, uh, and, and Rick Danko did a jazz album here with a, a guy named Lenny bro. So, and I also, you know, Dylan is so prolific and so many were, this is another uh, epiphany was that so many, so much music that I understood to be Bob Dylan's 
it was really, it is, and Bob Dylan wrote the music, but the backing band is the band. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I went and found out, found all of those albums. And there's a bunch of live music that came out um, after their second world tour, where instead of being booed, they were kind of cheered. And so those albums are very interesting to me because they're, they're playing pretty much, there's a lot of stuff out there that's just Dylan tracks, um, but I find really uh, enjoyable. The basement tapes, I mean, the basement tapes are, you can dig into endlessly and they're not, and they're so, the songs are like chameleons, you know, like every time you listen to them, they're different. So that's really how my listening changed. Um, I mean, you could spend a lifetime. Uh, my, my good friend Jan House put out the, the Bob Dylan box set of the basement tapes uh, and, you know, the, the band and, the, and Bob Dylan. Um, and I went to some of those, those sessions here in Toronto where they were, um, you know, they had the old school's quarter inch that Garth had recorded in the basement of Big Pink. And I watched them restoring and, and, uh, and capturing that that music uh peter moore's studio here in toronto with jan house uh both of whom won a grammy for best historical recording year that came out and so those are the recordings that really have grabbed my attention and it's part of what i was saying which is that uh big pink and then the self-titled or the brown album that came out that's really the end of the story in my mind and then what happens after that is kind of like a you can hear it it's kind of a trailing off and then, but all of the stuff that led up to that and all of the influences, and, you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, where, where does music come from? It sounds so American. It sounds the Southern, the Southernness of that music. Well, you can see it all, you can find those references um, by listening to that earlier music. So I find that intriguing. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for being with us. Um, thank you for your generosity and your time. And thank you for the incredible work on a documentary that we love. Hey, listen, it was great to talk with, to you guys. And thanks for having me. I, uh, it's been a lot of fun. We want to again thank Eamon O'Connor for being with us today. Uh, what an incredible picture of uh, what it's like to be that close to an artist or to a group and in some ways maybe be overwhelmed by, by all that you've experienced, but, but we so appreciate him being on the podcast. Makai, what, what did you think about our conversation with Amen? Man, I, I was having so much fun. Um, this is a documentary I've watched upper of four times on Hulu. It's still available on Hulu for those who haven't seen it. I, I highly recommend it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had so much, but there's so many things that, you know, that I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask it. And he was already answering the question I was afraid to ask, you know? So, I mean, he was, you know, such a treasure trove. So we want to encourage you, if you're listening to this, you can watch the documentary he edited once we were brothers, Robbie Robertson in the band. It is available right now to stream on Hulu. And he's really excited about an upcoming project he has. Uh, if you're into the true true crime podcast or the true crime documentaries, he has been a part of editing a true crime comedy called For Heaven's Sake that will be premiering on Paramount Plus this spring. So if you're going to be one of the people who dive into Paramount Plus, keep your eye open for heaven's sake. But thank you for being with us today. As always, we're going to conclude with the big question. Music from Big Pink. Is this a all-time great album? 
Man, I think so. I know, I know that he's exhausted it um, in his mind, and, and I probably would feel the same way if I had spent that much time with it. But, I mean, it, it just seems so important to how it shaped music coming after it and everyone who, who heard it, for your Bruce Springsteen's, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Dylan. You know, it, it's, it's hard to think about a great albums list without it. Rolling, the new Rolling Stone list has it at 100. I'm not mad about that. You know, I think, I mean, if it's in the 100, that's good enough for me. I, I think it is a worthy album. Agreed. Agreed. Well, listener, what do you think? Where do you think it should be on the list? Uh, go and watch these documentaries, whether it's Scorsese's The Last Waltz, uh, whether it's Once We're Brothers, and then hop on uh, Instagram or Twitter or our website, youforgotone.com. We are at youforgotonepod on Twitter, at youforgotone on Instagram. Let us know what you think about the band's music from Big Pink. And we're so excited to be with you back here next week. We'll see you.